Good morning. Hey, uh, we're going to encounter Jesus today, and we're going to really encounter him. This is an interesting passage of Scripture in Luke 19:45 to 49. But let me ask you a question. If someone asks you, what does it mean to be holy? Think about it. How would you answer? Robert Murray McShane, Scottish, said, by the way, he died at 30 years old, you know, uh, but he had lots of sayings. He said, a holy man is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. I think Machane took it for granted that his listeners knew what holiness is. The Apostle Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Now, in the church where I grew up, holiness always started with one word. Doesn't. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. In fact, we even, I'd see how many of you had this phrase. He don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't chew, and don't go with the girls who do. Now, there were more, but that sort of encapsulates it. Holiness was measured on what you didn't do. You know one of the problems with that? You can always find someone who doesn't do more than you don't do. Did that make sense? It did to me. You know, I mean, uh, the conclusion is, that they're more holy than I am. You know, Paul sort of destroys that thinking in Colossians 2, 20 to 23. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide how much? No help in conquering a person's evil desires. They don't deal with the inner life. So today we're going to see a sort of a radical act of Jesus to bring about holiness among his people. It's, it's, you know, it's recorded in all four gospels. The cleansing, we're talking about the cleansing of the temple, but the one in John probably was a different time. So he probably did it twice. Now, maybe along the way, we can get a few lessons for our daily lives and maybe get a good definition of holiness. So let's read this very short passage. Luke 19, 45 to 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the ESV. And he was teaching daily in the temple, important. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, a little cultural background. Pilgrims came to Jerusalem to worship in the temple and would purchase animals for sacrifices in the temple courts. So a need, a business grew up for selling animals and for exchanging money. 
Now, to get an idea of what they were doing, I found an interesting cultural fact that the sacrificial doves cost as much as a hundred times more there in the temple courts than they charged in the rural areas. They were basically gouging the people. Now, Jewish law required a temple tax of a half shekel. You can find that in Exodus chapter 30. The Jews and the visitors, the visitors from other nations, came to pay their taxes when they offered the sacrifices. Any coin with the likeness of a pagan emperor would not be accepted in God's temple. So, money changers exchanged these foreign coins for Jewish money. But they did it at an exorbitant profit. So, rather than provide a service... In another part of the town, they exploited the religious zeal of the people in Jerusalem and did their business on the temple grounds. Now, besides, there's one other part. Besides the selling of animals and the money changers, others were in charge of examining the animals that that people brought. And it was easy for them to say unclean or unapproved and uh, force the worshiper to buy another ad. Of course, an inflated price. So, what was going on here was exploiting the poor, exploiting the foreigner, which angered the Lord Jesus, and he drove them out. Now, in order to address the question of how to live a holy life out of this, I think we need to understand what the word holy means. To be holy, I think the biggest, the center of it means to be set apart or to be separate and, when, and, and in the Lord, it meant to be separate from sin and evil. First John 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Now, God calls us to be holy. It, it wasn't new to Peter. Exodus 19, Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It was there in the Old Testament. So once we've become Christians, we've, we've, we've become saved, that means we are declared righteous. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous, justified, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it actually mean to be actually righteous? To live a holy life. To live a holy life. So today... We're going to take a look at four things from this passage of the Lord cleansing the temple. To live a holy life, number one, we got to get angry with our sin. Jesus got angry with the sin there. And uh, with the sin in the temple. And you know what? He did something about it. And I think that's the purpose of anger, of righteous anger. Righteous anger means we do something about it, something about the sin, something righteous. God gets angry without sinning. Now, I'm going to talk here about four, about God's anger for a couple of minutes here. What we need to know about God's anger. If we're going to get angry about sin, it needs to be righteous anger. Number one, God's anger is not like human anger. It really isn't. When we talk about anger of God, everything we know about God, he's just, he's loving, he's faithful, he's light, he's merciful, he's good, needs to be injected into our understanding of God's anger. The word anger, of course, 
you know, sort of makes us think about our own experience, you know, when we get angry. Uh, by the way, have you ever seen any of these, these video clips of road rage? I mean, that's, I mean, that's human anger at its worst. Yikes. And, and, uh, we may have suffered from someone who's an angry person, loses his temper, has tantrums. Our anger can often be unpredictable, petty, blown out of proportion. Although these things are often true about us as humans, none of them are true when it comes to God's anger. God's anger is his righteous and measured response to evil. Second, God's anger is always provoked. The anger of God is not something that resides in him by nature. It is a response to evil. That is, it is provoked. The Bible says, God is love. That's his nature. That's what he is. Unlike the anger of God, the love of God is not provoked. He loves us because he loves us. It's not provoked. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8. He does not love us because he sees something in us. Wisdom. Beauty. Goodness. No. Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his heart on you or choose you because you were the most numerous of other nations. For you were the smallest of all nature. Nations. God's anger is his holy response to, to, to evil in this world. Now, if, if there were no sin in the world, God would never have reason to be angry. So, this is the Bible's teaching about God's wrath. And it's different also from ancient mythologies. And even the gods of some cults who are always angry and always frustrated. And, and the people are always trying to appease the anger of these gods. The anger of the true God does not result from frustration, but from his determination that evil should not prepare, pre- prevail. Now, why does God allow evil to continue in the world? I get, I get that, that question maybe six, seven times a year. The answer is found in his patience. And his desire for all to repent. Peter explains. He says this. The Lord isn't um, really being slow about his promise. As some people think. No. He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. But he wants everyone to repent. God offers grace. God offers forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Romans 5. However, let's be honest. The day of God's wrath will come. It's going to come someday. Zephaniah 2.2. Gather before judgment becomes, begins. Before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. God's anger, number three. It is revealed now. It's not only in the future. How does God reveal his anger now? Well, when sinners suppress the truth about him and exchange the truth for a lie, this is all in Romans 1, 
and worship created things instead of the Creator, God leaves them to their own sins. Romans 1.24 So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. John MacArthur says this, People who set out to forsake God will be so forsaken by Him. He does this indirectly and immediately by removing impediments to allow them to sin and suffer the consequences, as well as directly through specific acts of judgment and divine punishment. Romans 1, 26 and 28. This is why God abandoned them to shameful deeds, desires, to their, and to their foolish thinking. Number four. God's anger. God's anger is contained. Bible history points to a day when God will deal with all evil completely. That, that's what we call the day of wrath. When God will repay all evil and bring all sin to judgment. Romans 2, 5 says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But now it's contained. How do we remove the anger of God? Hmm. The Bible speaks of the wrath of God being satisfied where? On the cross. Divine wrath. Toward sin was poured upon on Jesus. He became the, I know it's a big word, propitiation. Sin offering. Atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which means that Christ paid for our sins on the cross. God so loved the objects of his anger, that's us. And he poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. Now, Never get the idea that God loves us because Christ died for us. No, it's the other way around. Christ died for us because he loves us. He loved us even when we were the object of his anger. The outpouring of God's anger on Christ was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Now, between us and God's anger stands the cross Of Jesus. This is our hope, the hope for sinners. Sin was laid upon Jesus, and the divine wrath toward that sin was spent on Calvary. And remember, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. Then Christ rose from the dead. He's a living Savior. He offers you and me a precious gift which is called the peace with God. Romans 14, 27. He's ready to forgive sins. Colossians 2. Fill us with his spirit. John 14. He can save us from God's anger and reconcile us with the Father. He can open the door of heaven and invites all of us to enter. Continuing on with the wrath of God and the anger of God, What is it that provokes his anger? I I spent some time thinking about this, and I've come up with a couple. Number one, causing others to sin. That's number one. Now, in 1 Kings 15, it says this. This was done because Jeroboam had provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
by the sins he had committed and the sins that he led Israel to commit. It's not surprising that we find in the New Testament, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large milestone tied around your neck and be drawn in the depths of the sea. Drowned. Have you seen the movie, The, the, the Sound of Freedom? I know, Dick, I think you have. You know, when you read, when you see that movie in the light of Matthew 18.6, I just wonder. I really wonder. Two, what causes, provokes, worshiping idols. In this way, Israel joined in the battle of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people, Numbers 25. Now, we may, we're probably never going to worship a statue, but the prophet Ezekiel surprises us when he says, I, the Lord, will answer all those who reject me and set up Idols in their hearts and so fall into sin. Idols of the heart. The prophet Ezekiel makes me, makes us take a look at the place God occupies in our hearts. You know, the place where we make decisions. The Bible affirms that the decisions we make will reveal what or whom we worship. Will we worship idols of the heart or God? Now, from this perspective, the sin that so easily trips us up, remember that in Hebrews 12, that sin? The the sin that so easily trips us up is an idol we serve. This decision or these desires compete for our devotion, as do money, anger, pleasure, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, fame, the bottle, sex, the opinions of others, and, and sometimes even our own family. When we understand what's behind our decisions, we discover that we serve what we love. We love and serve God or we love and serve our idols. Idols exist in our lives because we love them. We invite them in to be part of our life. But once the idols find a home, they change. And instead of being the servants of our desires, they become our masters. You know, Romans 6 says this. Do you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. There's no doubt about it. Idols of the heart provoke the anger of God. Next, this is one. (laughs) Complaining about the goodness of God. Now, this is found in, in Numbers, and it says, Soon the people begin to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said, and the Lord's anger blazed against them. And I was notable that the Israelites complained to each other. A practice, by the way, that solves absolutely nothing. For the New Testament clearly says, do everything without complaining and arguing. 
Now, there's a list of the characteristics of false teachers. And I was just in Argentina and Uruguay, and I decided to study the book of Jude while I was down there. And, uh, and, and while I was studying it, I found this about the characteristics of false teachers. It says, these people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. What angers God, what, what, what provokes God to anger? Number four, doing God's work arrogantly. Nahab and Abihu angered God by offering the King James and the New American Standards say strange fire. The, the NLT says wrong kind of fire. Now it's evident that the error of the sons of Aaron here had to do with their attitude and the fire that they offered. Now, in Exodus 30, it says this, Do not offer any unholy incense on this altar. Now, whatever the reason, they abused their office by willingly disobeying God. And doing God's work in a proud way makes God angry. Repeatedly, the Bible, we find the command to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and seek mercy and seek forgiveness. You know, I also suggest reading, uh, when you get home, the story of the moving of the ark in Second Samuel 6 and First Chronicles 15. Now, another one makes God angry, suppressing the truth. I'm going to read the notes from the Life Application Bible in Romans 1. Why is God angry with sinners? Because they have exchanged the truth about him for a lie. Through creation, God reveals the truth to all people. But some stifle that truth to believe whatever supports their self-centered lifestyle. God cannot tolerate sin because his nature is morally perfect. He cannot tolerate or overlook deliberate rebellion. God can remove sin and restore the sinner if the sinner does not stubbornly choose to reject the truth. God shows his anger against those who persist in sinning. Make sure, the notes say, you are not going after a lie instead of following the true God. Don't suppress the truth about him just to protect your own lifestyle. Another thing that provokes God's anger. Marrying a non-Christian, if you're a Christian. Deuteronomy 7. Do not intermarry with them. Don't let your daughters or sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. We commonly today call this unequally yoked because of the King James, the ESV terminology. This is the, this is the ESV. Do not be unequally yoked with Unbelievers. Now, what it means to be unequally yoked? Uh, here's a here's an image of 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 the. I know he's he's yoked to a donkey. Now, a yoke, a yoke is a wooden bar that joins two oxen to each other and to the load that they're pulling. Now, to be unequally yoked, the team has a stronger and a weaker steer, or a taller and a shorter steer. The weaker or the shorter ox 
walk slower than the taller or the stronger one. And you know what happens? They walk in circles. They get nothing done. You know, the New Living Translation in 2 Corinthians 6 says this. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light be live with darkness? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? This provokes God's anger. My wife has a great nephew who grew up in the church. Good, good family. He fell in love with a non-Christian and they got married. They've been married for 15 years now. We just saw them. And they've never returned to church. And rarely does the Christian influence the non-Christian so much that he received Christ. Generally, it's the opposite. Now, Stacy's going to kill me, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story. I can't, this is so good a story. I've got to tell it. When we lived in Mexico, we, we had a, we had a secretary in the office who uh, was the daughter of a elder in a Plymouth Brethren Assembly. And, uh, she, uh, fell in love with a non-Christian. And so I talked with her, you know, the people in the church, her father talked with her, but he, she insisted in going with this guy. One day, this kid, the non-Christian, he's walking down the street in Mexico City, and there's a tent there. He thought it was a circus. Well, it was a circus tent. He walks in, and it's an evangelistic service. So he goes in, sits down, listens to the gospel, goes forward, receives the Lord. And after he got into a church and started reading the Bible, you know what he did? He went and broke up with her. And here's what he said. I don't want to go with a girl who would go, a Christian girl who would go with a non-Christian, even though I was the non-Christian. Now, Stacy, tell me, wasn't that worth telling? Okay, she agrees. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart to turn away from the Lord. Okay, if we want to we want to live holy lives, we've got to not only get angry with our sin, but number two, cleanse the temple of God. Let's be clear. Acts 7, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. Paul clearly says, or do not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? You were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. When we're speaking about the temple, we're speaking about here. This is the temple of God. I, I remember I used to speak in a church in Mexico City, and right over your head, they had a big banner that said, uh, House of God, Gate of Heaven. El Casa de Dios, Puerta al Cielo. It, it said in Spanish. And, or, and when I was just saved in the church, they used to say, Don't run. This is the house of God. You know... This is a church building. This is the house of God. This is the temple. It's in here. This is what needs to be holy in here. And uh, I remember Ray, Ray Stedman, when, when he was one of my mentors, the people would ask him, oh, by the way, Ray, where's your church? He would always ask, answer the same thing. Uh, some are working. Uh, 
others are at school, others are at home. No, no, I mean, you know, I mean, you know. So the next step is to cleanse the temple, which is your heart, your body. Romans 12.1 And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all the things he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off two things. Every weight that slows us down, and especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Number three. To live a holy life, we got to get back to serving others. Do you notice what Jesus did immediately? He started ministering day by day in the temple. Once you've cleansed the temple, your body, it's time to serve others. Another definition that I love this definition of being holy. Set apart. Yeah, set apart's always there for a special purpose. Put to the proper use. Jesus did that. Luke 19:47, And he was teaching daily in the temple. Right now, all through the land... And I presume in other parts, coming out of the, the uh, uh-oh, pandemia, help me, pandemic. Coming out of the pandemic, there is a desperate need all over the land for people serving. And articles are being written on us. What was the cause of it? I just got another one a couple of days ago. Why isn't it that people are serving? You know, it's not God's fault. Listen to this. First Peter 4.10 God, out of his wide variety of spiritual gifts, has given a gift to each of you. Can I say it a different way, each of us? Use them well to serve one another. You know, there's nothing more satisfying in the Christian life than serving others. There isn't. And it's not always easy to determine how to serve. But at the center of this is the matter of spiritual gifts. The body of Christ is characterized by two things. Number one, diversity. Number two, unity. Unity and diversity. In the unity of the body, each believer is closely linked with, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's also diversity of function among us. Each believer, every one of us, has a particular function in the body of Christ. The supernatural gift is his ability to carry out that ministry. At salvation, every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4.10 states that each believer receives a gift and emphasizes that we use it to serve one another. 1 Corinthians 12.4 tells us how we receive our gift. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an important distinction made in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts. But the same spirit is the source of them all. Different gifts, same source. There are different ways to serve. But we all serve the same Lord. Different ways of serve. But the same source. God works in different ways. And he is the same God who does the work in all of us. 
God will take your gift and your and use it. Now, Paul says in verse four that the job of the Holy Spirit is to bestow the gifts. In verse four, he says there are a variety of gifts. Paul goes on in verse five to explain Jesus leads us to the perfect place to use the gift. And then there are different ministries within the same gift. Luis Palau definitely had the gift of evangelist. And his ministry was preached to the masses. While the Holy Spirit has given others the same exact gift of evangelism, their ministry might be one-on-one, talking to people individually. So the first thing is to find your gift. Second is to be led by Christ to the perfect place to use your gift. But Paul continues the effects and the operation of the work of God in verse 6. I think there's a difference... And, and we were, I, I was on a, uh, uh, a Zoom call yesterday to uh, people in Ecuador, Colombia, Argentina, Uruguay, and Bolivia. And we were talking about this. There's a difference between your testimony and your ministry. Every believer is always to be a testimony. Life, words, you know, the, the way you respond to things. We're not always involved in our ministry, but we are always a witness for the goodness of God. There's a difference between our job, occupation, and ministry. Employment is an institution of God that has value apart from God's calling to ministry because work provides the needs of the family and work also places us in the world of the non-Christians where we can be a testimony. There's a difference between our relationship with God, our spiritual life, and our ministry. Now, our relationship... Uh, one has with God does not determine the ministry or vice versa. But for sure, the quality of the spiritual life will affect the effectiveness of your ministry. And there's a difference between a spiritual gift and a talent. A talent is something natural that is received in various degrees at birth, which has to be developed. A spiritual gift is a spiritual capacity that's received at the new birth which has to be developed. Finally, how do you find the spiritual gift? You know, I remember when I started playing baseball. Catch, catcher, no, that's not for me. That's not for me, you know. Uh, uh, How about shortstop? Uh, Those long throws from the hole, can't make them, you know. You know, today I would end up being a designated hitter. I could hit. That's where I belong. You know, uh, how do you find it? First, understand you're gifted by God. Second, have the desire to serve. And then you have to try different opportunities. Talk to one of us. Talk to Brittany back there. You know, find out what's, what's available. A spiritual gift is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Fourth, to live a holy life... We're going to land the plane here. To live a holy life, we've got to expect opposition. If you want to really step out in holiness, you know, you're going to, you're going to have, have some opposition. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy Jesus. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people who were hanging on his words. Who were the principal men of the people? They were a group likely included prosperous leaders in politics, commerce, law. They had various reasons for wanting to get rid of Jesus. 
you know, they, Jesus harmed his, their business by, by throwing, by driving them out of the temple. In addition, he preached against injustice. Hmm. And sometimes favored the poor over the rich. You know, the critics might even be closer to home. John 7, 5. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. And then, Matthew 13, and then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here amongst us. Where did he learn all of these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. How about you and I? Hmm? We want to step out in holiness. Peter says, You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. Moses was criticized by his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. And, of course, by the people in general. So you want to live a holy life. Don't let criticism deter you. Nehemiah, building the wall. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officials, Samarian. What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think that they can rebuild the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make some stones from this rubbish heap to charge one at at that? There was mocking, there was anger, there was belittling, but Nehemiah prayed and continued the work. So my conclusion is, if you want to walk in holiness, get angry with your sin. And do something about it. Secondly, cleanse the temple of God. You know, one of my favorite uh, songs of all time. Unfortunately, I have it on a 78. Does anybody remember 78's vinyl? About this big? I've got it on a 78. I don't know how to play it now. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are washed away. It comes from Psalm 32, when David had his heart cleansed. Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Oof, guilt. Oof. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said to you, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Next to live a holy life, serve others. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And finally, to live a holy life. Don't let criticism deter you. Nehemiah finished the wall. He really did. He finished it. And when 
Paul was waiting execution, he said, and this is what we want to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. You know, uh, a holy man is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. Lord, thank you for these brief moments together. Lord, we thank you that we can honor you. And you said, be holy for I am holy. Oh, Lord, we serve a holy God. Thank you. We serve a compassionate, loving God. Thank you for that also. So, Lord, as we leave, help us all to walk out of here in holiness. In Jesus' name.